Florida has hurricanes. California has earthquakes. New England has nor'easters, and the Midwest has more tornadoes than they would care to remember. A region's weather has a tendency to define how people live there and the kind of culture that they grow up in. I'll never forget visiting a good friend of mine in Florida and learning that they really dated things by which buildings had survived which hurricanes. But aside from some snowstorms, monsoon storms, and of course, the heat, and the heat, and the heat, Arizona isn't exactly known for its exceptional weather. However, on occasion, Mother Nature has gotten herself into quite the foul mood and decided that this little spot in the southwest has had it too good for too long. So as we are closing out the 19th century, it's time to take an in-depth look at when the natural forces left the territory weak in the knees and then nearly drowned it entirely. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 134 Acts of God. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we burned through another couple of short lived territorial governors as the winds of political fortune kept shifting directions in the late 1890s. But after three weeks of talking about, and maybe laughing a bit at, political history, it's time to switch gears. Since I was going to be attending the Arizona History Convention on April 15th, and that involves just a little bit of travel for me, I decided that in order to put an episode out this week, I needed to do a one-off that I was okay with being a bit shorter than a normal episode. And that's where today's subject comes in. Really, what we're going to cover today is something that I wanted to touch on, but could just never find the right time or place to slip into the main narrative. Looking back in the transcripts, I see that I actually reference what I want to talk about first in episode 82, and then again in episode 124. And that is the Great Sonoran Earthquake of 1887. Earthquakes, or at least ones strong enough to be noticeable, aren't unknown in Arizona, but they also aren't that common either. Some of you listening might remember or even felt the 4.1 magnitude earthquake that struck Black Canyon City in 2015. In the wake of that, I was doing a story for the newspaper I was working for in southern Arizona, and my favorite part of that was learning that there was actually a fault line running along the western base of the Santa Rita Mountains that had the potential to go off in a 6.5 magnitude earthquake. But Funny enough, while the earthquake we're going to talk about now did impact Arizona quite a bit, the true epicenter was actually further south, about 40 miles below the international border near the Mexican town of Bavispe. On the afternoon of May 3rd, 1887, shortly after 2 p.m., the earth started rumbling. Now, there is some inconsistency about the strength of this quake, with some sources reporting that it was 7.2 magnitude, but others going up to 7.6. Either way, this was a huge earthquake. 
The poor Mexican towns, including Bavispe, were struck the hardest, where the residents first heard a loud roaring, then experienced the earth moving underfoot. Adobe houses were destroyed, deep cracks appeared in the streets, the earth sunk in places and water moved in to fill the depressions. Up in the Sierra Madres, smoke and fire actually were seen, leading some to originally assume a volcano had exploded. In Bavispe itself, more than 40 people were killed and nearly 30 wounded. Following the quake and its various aftershocks, the local priests called everyone to the church to proclaim it was God's wrath over their sins. Other places in Mexico were just as hard hit, but for our purposes, I want to follow the shockwaves north as they started to hit Arizona. A major tremor struck Tombstone around 2.11pm, lasting around 40 seconds, and causing all the sorts of damage you would expect. It was felt most keenly by those working in the mines, where some dropped their tools and ran for the cage in the shaft to be taken up ASAP. Another miner, about 150 feet underground, told a colleague to get underneath something. The colleague quickly replied, quote, The Lord knows I'm under enough already. End quote. Fourteen miles up the San Pedro River, in the town of Charleston, the quake lasted 30 seconds but did more damage than in Tombstone. Every single building in town was damaged, and boulders rolling down the hills caused sparks that lit fires, while water burst out of fissures in the earth and some spring-fed streams just stopped flowing altogether. No one was actually injured by this. However, the quake was basically the nail in Charleston's coffin. The town had been circling the drain once the mills to process silver from Tombstone had been shut down, and after the earthquake, the citizens decided just to move to either Tombstone or another local community altogether. Over at the Mormon colony of St. David, the earthquake lasted a full three minutes. Buildings collapsed. The schoolhouse, which as I mentioned back in episode 82 was thankfully empty, was completely wrecked, and water was actually thrown out of irrigation ditches. Town inhabitants would all sleep outside that night out of fear of further tremors collapsing their roofs on them while they slept. Funny enough, the earthquake did have one positive benefit for the community. According to an article in the summer 1977 volume of the journal Arizona in the West, it was the quake that caused the artisan wells we talked about in episode 82 to appear. Before that, the area of St. David had been swampy marshland that was prone to outbreaks of malaria epidemics, which we definitely have talked about before. But now the artisan ponds caused fresh water to replace the stagnant pools that had been there before. Apparently, local Mormon leader David Snow had predicted that the malaria epidemics would end dramatically, and then proclaimed that God had used the earthquakes to do just that. Over in Benson, the quake struck shortly after 2 p.m., causing buildings to sway and to develop huge cracks. A Southern Pacific Railroad engine apparently began to sway back and forth on the tracks like a little toy. And again, smoke and fire were seen up in the mountains, and the initial reports going out from Benson to places such as San Francisco were that a volcano had gone off, something that got the world's attention and it would take some time before everyone learned that this was not true. Tucson felt the earthquake hit around 2.12pm, with one person recalling that the tremors lasted a full four minutes. 
buildings were damaged, clocks were stopped, and people running out to the streets even reported feeling nauseous from the shaking ground. And the shockwaves also compressed the earth so tightly that in some instances it cut off underground water sources to the point that springs and wells dried up. Local ranchers also reported that the cows had been acting strange in the moments before the earthquake and then panicked once it hit. Afterwards, it was said that local dogs were unusually quiet and very few barked. From there, the waves continued north until they got to Phoenix, which experienced tremors around 2.55 p.m. No structures were harmed on this extreme northern edge of the earthquake, but church bells did ring and buildings swayed in a wave-like motion. Citizens running outside observed an enormous dust cloud to the south, which they later learned was caused by a rock slide near the Salt River. Directly to the east, in Globe, the pendulum clocks all stopped at 3.11pm, though like in Phoenix there was no damage. In Solomonville, roughly 80 miles north of Benson, the quake hit around 3.10pm, right during the middle of a jury trial. I'm not sure what the case was about, but it apparently was a barn burner as the courthouse was packed with people following the legal drama. As soon as the tremors started, everyone tried to scatter to the nearest exit. One man, apparently on the larger side with a weight of 250 pounds, got stuck in a window while trying to get outside that way and had to be helped out by the local sheriff. This earthquake was felt well outside of Arizona too. In fact, it was felt as far away as West Texas. In New Mexico, it was felt by the residents of El Paso around 3.08 p.m. and in Albuquerque at 3.13 p.m. And going south, it was felt as far away as Mexico City. The original reporting about the quake was hyperbolic, to say the least, and many of the first reports are that a volcano had erupted. On the American side, it was also erroneously reported that the epicenter had been none other than Tucson. At the time, the United States Geological Survey didn't have anyone it could dispatch to look into the matter, so the head of the USGS wrote to a physician friend and asked him to investigate. Going down into Mexico over the summer of 1887 and meeting with a representative of the Mexican government on the same mission, this physician collected the first evidence about the epicenter of the quake and began calculating its magnitude. All in all, the earthquake of 1887 had very little lasting impact on Arizona, aside from the fate of Charleston and some fresh water for St. David, that is. But it remains today the largest earthquake within recorded history inside of the state. And not to be ominous or anything, but I guess it's just a waiting game to see how long it holds on to that particular title. From this great earthquake, we have to jump four years into the future and a couple hundred miles to the north to talk about the Great Flood of 1891. For the unfamiliar, the idea of flooding in Arizona might seem odd, but it's actually been part of life in the Phoenix area since, well, the beginning. The Salt River arises in the White Mountains at the confluence of the White and Black Rivers, as well as being fed by any number of streams and creeks in Gila and Maricopa counties. 
In the past, it was a perennial stream, which one source in the 1860s described as having a low flow and inclined to be swampy, with rows of cottonwood, mesquite, and willow trees along its banks. However, due to monsoon storms or high amounts of snow up near its source, the salt was capable of carrying large amounts of water downstream in massive floods. Way back in episode 4, when we were talking about the Hohokam, we learned that flooding took out one of the largest of their amazing canals between 1380 and 1400 AD, and that flooding was one of the hypotheses put forward as to why that civilization eventually abandoned the Valley of the Sun altogether. You'll recall that Jack Swilling and his associates started their grand irrigation project in 1867. Well, the very next year, heavy rains sent a flood down the Salt River that took out their developing infrastructure. I'll also throw out here that it was flooding on the Salt River that delayed Charles T. Hayden in the valley long enough for him to have his grand vision of establishing the ferry that would one day become the city of Tempe. And in January 1874, the river overran its banks for three days, destroying both the headgate of Swilling's Ditch and a granary filled with 10 tons of wheat. People quickly abandoned their adobe homes gathering in the local courthouse and school for safety. And when church services were held the next Sunday, the congregation had to gather in a local saloon. After this particular flood, the Salt River was uncrossable for two whole weeks. Then, in February 1890, melting snow from a spring storm upstream once again threw more water than the salt could handle toward the farming communities in the Valley of the Sun. The turbulent waters rose more than 17 feet and managed to take out both the telegraph line and nearly 200 feet of the new railroad bridge crossing the river at Tempe. In fact, a train had to be stopped just in time to keep it from plunging off the damaged bridge into the water below. But as bad as all these previous floods were, they were nothing compared to the Great Flood of 1891. January 1891 had been a wet month, and the river had risen, but no one was unduly concerned. In fact, the Arizona Republican newspaper was saying that the river was passable and predicted that it meant the presence of a lot of snow up in the mountains, which was good news as it could herald plenty of water for the upcoming summer. However, as February started, the weather turned dry, and the same paper began to worry about there not being enough snow and that the cattle industry would suffer. Then, as if to mock all attempts at prognostication, it began to rain. Starting February 16th, rain poured down on Phoenix and did not let up for nearly a week. At 2 a.m. on February 19th, the water was up 16 feet at the Arizona Canal Dam, 10 miles upstream from Phoenix, which was 4 feet higher than the flood the previous year, and indeed higher than ever recorded. And, if it got any higher, that could mean bad news for the railroad bridge in Tempe, the only bridge crossing the river at the time. Still, the various newspapers in Phoenix assured everyone that even if the water level kept rising, the city itself was perfectly safe. According to a local engineer quoted in the Arizona Republican, quote, it would be impossible against natural laws for any volume of water to flow by means of canal routes into the city, end quote. 
I don't know the name of this engineer, which is probably best for him because he was utterly and tragically wrong. By the afternoon of Thursday, February 19, 1891, the rain had been pouring down for days. The river at Phoenix had risen a full 18 feet and was three miles wide. Upstream, where the Verde and Salt Rivers converged northeast of Mesa, now known as the Fond D. Sutton Recreational Area, it was a veritable sea that was nearly eight miles wide. Water began pouring into Phoenix, turning streets and canals into miniature rivers, despite any predictions about how impossible that was. On Tempe Street, the water was a swift flowing current of at least two feet deep. Everything south of Jackson Street and east of 6th Street, then called Tonto Street, was pretty much a lake with buildings sticking out like islands. Of course, people tried to make it to safety where they could, but the waters rose so rapidly that school was actually in session on the east side of Phoenix, and a reporter had to surreptitiously inform the teacher to evacuate the students without causing a panic. And when rescuers reached the house of one woman and her family, they found it empty and suspected the worst. However, she had actually decided to head towards a small ridge that paralleled the river. So with two children hanging onto her skirt and the two smaller ones tucked under her arms, she had waded through the current which came up to her waist before finally making it to higher ground and some friends helped her out of the water entirely. Another group of men driving a wagon in water that came up nearly to its bed were able to save several Hispanic men trapped on the roof of an adobe house right before it collapsed. Law enforcement did their best to evacuate people, with each officer of the law having literally dozens of rescues to their name by the time everything was said and done. The hardest hit of everyone was the Hispanic population. They tended to live in the poorer parts of town, which meant they lived more in adobe houses. And adobe houses, being made from mud, don't last long in floodwaters. One account said that the adobe buildings melted away, quote, like snowdrifts before an April sun, end quote. All in all, some 50 adobe buildings would be lost, including five along Jackson Street that had belonged to the same man. The surging water also did no favors to the now sprawling complex of irrigation canals. Though the initial reports painted a much more grim picture than reality, the surging water still managed to damage miles of the Arizona, Mesa, Tempe, and Highland canals, while simultaneously submerging fields and taking out diversion dams. It would take weeks of work to get everything in working order again. Over in Tempe, they were dealing with the same issues, and the water inundated Charles T. Hayden's orchard and made it practically to the front door of his flour mill and house. But the worst thing of all was the fate of the railroad bridge. In the middle of the night, on February 18th, the telegraph line into Phoenix suddenly went dead. The flood had once again taken it out. And the bridge itself was next. At five past eight in the morning, a large cottonwood tree that had been caught up in the river slammed into the north end of the bridge. The structure shook violently for the next five minutes before three spans fell into the roiling waters underneath. This destruction would leave Phoenix without any telegraph service for a week and any railroad services for three whole months. Luckily, 
boat service still continued, and by February 20th, people were again crossing the river with mail and supplies. The water eventually began to subside after 8 p.m. on February 19th, though it left the community with a stagnant, swampy smell to it. However, this turned out to be a temporary reprieve. The rain returned intermittently on Sunday, February 22nd, and then continued into Monday the 23rd. Phoenicians gathered at the office of the Improvement Company, waiting to receive the official depth counts from an agent stationed at the head of the Arizona Canal. At 2.40 a.m. on February 24th, the water was 17 feet and 1 inch above the dam, matching what had occurred just a few days before. It would end up cresting at 18 feet 2 inches above the dam with a flow of some 300,000 cubic feet per second, the highest in recorded history. Shortly before dawn on the 24th, a makeshift levee at the Maricopa Canal broke, and water again poured into Phoenix. By 7.30, it was threatening the property of some of the most prominent people in the city, including John Y.T. Smith, the valley's first permanent white settler, who was then serving as the territorial treasurer. Luckily, the water began to recede by 2 p.m. and was completely gone by that evening. And funny enough, this second wave of flooding did less damage than the first, though it still managed to take out some more adobe buildings. Part of that is because people were much more alert this time and headed to high ground as soon as possible. The school teacher on the east side of town even dismissed class early this time. And the other part is that the waters basically came up to the same place they had risen on the 19th, so the majority of the damage had already been done. Notably, no one had actually died over the course of the flooding, though as the rain ceased and cleanup began, everyone agreed that they had all lived through some terrible calamity. And on a very human note, immediately after the waters receded, the finger-pointing began. Initially, the companies overseeing the local canals were blamed for shoddy maintenance and construction, with one paper actually laying the blame for the entire flooding on their carelessness, an inflammatory accusation, I will add, that they had to retract just a couple days later. Continuing through all the stages of grief, finally the citizens reached acceptance. Various charitable events were held to aid flood victims, while the town leaders began to look for silver linings. Reports soon came in from farmers that their fields had been very nicely watered, and the Arizona Republican also printed that every farmer or rancher affected by the flooding had found, much to their delight, that gophers, rabbits, and other species considered vermin were no longer really a problem. Another man even lumped dogs and cats into that last group, being quoted in the Phoenix Daily Herald that all the noisy fidos and whiskers out there that had kept people awake on the south part of town had not been heard from since. The flood had also brought in several inches of rich silt to the soil, which would help grow things in the future, at least according to the Arizona Republican. These good feelings also kind of came at the expense of the less fortunate, as the adobe houses became a favorite target of the newspapers, who all delighted in their destruction. And since adobe homes were much more impacted than others in the better part of town, the reporting also began to imply that the Hispanic population had somehow been less vigilant about protecting their property. It didn't matter that real people had lost real property, the adobe houses were an eyesore and the newspapers were all too happy to say so. The Republican would print, quote, 
There is no suitable adobe clay in this valley, and the hovels that have in many cases sheltered the ranchers were scarce able to uphold their own ponderous dirt roofs. It is to be hoped that the flood, if nothing else, will relieve the valley forever of the dreadful mud house. End quote. I will add here that the flood also had the impact of pushing the future growth of Phoenix north, away from the river, as the salt had actually shifted to the northern side of its channel during all of this. In the aftermath of the flood, everyone knew what the solution was. Dams, dams, and more dams. Pushes began for a dam to be built at the confluence of the Salt River and Tonto Creek, the same place where Theodore Roosevelt Dam would be erected two decades later. However, ironically enough, when the dam was actually being built, the main motivating factor was not flood control, but water retention. Because the rest of the 1890s turned out to be much drier than anyone expected or wanted, so concerns quickly shifted from too much to too little water flowing in the salt. And despite the fact that the construction was hampered several times by flooding, when the dam was finally dedicated in 1915, everybody was thinking about electricity and water for agriculture. No one was thinking about how this dam would stop 1891 from happening all over again. Except, more or less, that's what the dams have stopped. Of course, there would be other floods, including ones that would even take out bridges across the Salt River in Phoenix and Tempe again, but to date, there has never been a deluge like that February more than 130 years ago. And on that note, I'm going to leave things here for this week, as in-person me has a conference to attend. However, join me next week as we unravel the audacious plan of a Missouri-born streetcar conductor who had a dream of fame and fortune and was willing to swindle every last person on two continents in order to achieve it. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Goodbye.